I can do things that wear it without asking anybody, even my Coney wife. Island, world's biggest barrel of fun. Anywhere else your imagination takes you. Okay, we've done that now, Mark. You get the whole show now if you hurry, hurry, hurry. Anything's possible at Disneyland. Welcome aboard the Themed Attraction Podcast, where we take you for a ride through the wonderful world of theme park design, that is. You've just set sail on a journey of discovery and discussion with theme park industry masters of the craft. I'm your skipper, Freddie Martin, and bobbing along the river with me, as always, is experienced designer, master planner, and chief creative officer of Storyland Studios, Mel McGowan. Hey, where's the river going to take us today, Mel? Well, we're taking the long way around today with someone whose career has had as many bends and turns as an Intamin Megacoaster. Joe Lanzisro has served as a senior creative executive for Walt Disney Imagineering, leading development in Disney's theme parks, cruise line, resorts, restaurants, and retail. But unlike uh, some of today's Imagineers uh, and more like Walt's original team of WED, um, Joe's career started off at the animation desk, creating some of Disney's beloved animated features. Yeah, I can't wait to get into this. All right, folks, keep your hands, arms, feet, and legs inside the boat, because this episode is about to leave the dock. Hit it, Sam. So, Mel, today our guest is uh, somebody who has begun a career, began his career uh, in a totally different way than how he has now sort of uh, coming towards the end of his career. Uh, he started out, uh, Joe Lanzicero started out as a CalArts trained animator, uh, somebody who uh, began, you know, drawing cells, doing special effects, creating uh, backgrounds for uh, set pieces in animation and uh, came to become, you know, one of the most uh, relied upon uh, uh, designers in Walt Disney Imagineering. That is pretty incredible. Agreed. You know, and it's um, a lot of people think it's a more of a natural uh, move from animation into Imagineering. Um, and, you know, there's a few guys that made that move, like Mark Davis, a few of those Disney Imagineers, but it's actually uh, not as common as you would think. Even a lot of the original legendary Imagineers that we think of were guys that Walt had to kind of pluck from other live action studios like 20th Century Fox specifically um, to bring over uh, because they had that real world architecture or set design uh, experience. So Joe is really kind of a, a unique story that's increasingly rare these days. Yeah, I, I love it. And we, you know, we talk about this, uh, about disciplines, the disciplines that are used within um, themed entertainment design, right? Um, but when you think about animation, you go back to that time and you, you know, if you've watched any, if you've ever studied animation at all, or watched any of the old Walt Disney uh, presents type of shows where he talks about animation, you recognize that character design is one type of discipline, that background art is a discipline, set design is a discipline. And um, all of these animators and filmmakers have some disciplines that somehow, some way made it into the themed entertainment industry, uh, or you know, through through folks like Mark Davis or or like Joe, will say today. So, how do those disciplines? How do you think those disciplines of art design, character design, uh, set design? How do they become those ideal personnel for uh, designing this new concept in a kiddie park? <laughs> <laughs> Well, I don't know about the kitty park thing, but, you know, I think, um, you know, one of the common threads between animation and um, spatial storytelling or imagineering and theme park design is the, the need for some pretty extreme efficiency. You can't have this kind of um, sloppy or egotistical director that wants to just shoot hundreds of hours of film and then leave it to the poor guy in the editing room to somehow, <laughs> you know, edit that into uh, somewhat of a cohesive script because of all the time, length, energy, painstaking, hand drawn, you know, the, the work that goes into every single frame, much like every brick and uh, piece of uh, mortar or, you know, character paint and plaster that goes into physically 
uh, building out these worlds. I mean, it just requires a lot of strategic and advanced planning and thinking. And uh, again, editing the core story and knowing what the heart of that story is and the, the emotional kind of arc uh, and, and kind of thinking through all that stuff before you just start uh, building every idea that you have uh, or building everything that you can draw. Uh, so I think that's a big overlay common thread. Uh, but then the other thing that I personally really appreciate about both this industry and uh, what I would actually, I think a, a lot of others would, would argue is kind of one of the few truly collective art forms uh, in the world uh, is is exactly that. It really is a unique thing where it takes such a unique, diverse uh, skill set. You know, we always call our team a motley crew. You know, that that complementary, diverse skill set from from artists, architects, artisans, accountants, project managers. Uh, you know, just it, it is just such a diverse array of backgrounds, and and he, even in the original uh, animated. Films, um, you know the 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 complementary skill set. You th- you think of an of I works and you know whatever mm-hmm. original talent uh, he had, for example, as a, a faster hand yeah. than Walt Disney ever could be, uh, if not a better hand at drawing Mickey and uh, you know animating some. You know his technical competence and expertise and, and drive for experimentation and R and D really ultimately led to even uh, more significant um, contributions to. Uh, the Walt Disney Company and, and Walt Disney personally. So, um, you know, it, people just bring this uh, uniquely, uh, this unique mix of gifts and talents to the table and and uh, folks that, you know, can leverage that and let them shine and not keep them in the box maybe that they were hired into, mm-hmm. uh, you know, will do really well for themselves and for their projects. Uh, that's Yeah, that's absolutely true. And I've seen it uh, firsthand. Well, our guest today is Joe Lancicero. Joe is a 30-year Disney veteran who began his uh, began in animation, actually, and graduated to Imagineering, where he eventually became known as the theme park land expansion guy. He expanded so many, including Critter Country and Toontown in Anaheim and Toy Story Land, Grizzly Gulch, and Mystic Point in Tokyo. Today, Joe is uh, Executive Vice President is at Zeitgeist Design. Um, he's created directing many projects for theme parks and cruise lines, museums, and more. And he's one of the world's top go-to guys for actually for experience design. So uh, for user experience design, I should say. Well, let's get busy. It's time to dive in with our interview with Mr. Joe Lancicero. Hey, Joe. Great to see you. Hey, <laughs> hey, Mel. Good it's, to see you here virtually. It's been way too long. On my computer screen. Yeah, yeah. like I said, I think the last time we physically got together was Marty Sklar's house. Uh, so that was a, a way back machine. I think you were still sharing some fun stuff on Disney Cruise Line. But, uh, I, I was, yeah. So I was with the Cruise yeah. Line. Exactly. Uh, I'm sorry I couldn't get my visa fast enough to join you in China for that uh, <laughs> awesome Chimlong project. That would have been so much fun, but you know, could happen again. Yeah, you never I know. Share some chow mein with you sooner rather than later. But we, we, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. oh, they they have those sumptuous chimalong buffets, not to be missed. <laughs> yeah, <right>. Oh, really? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Crazy. Awesome. Well, um, we've uh, enjoyed the collaborative partnerships between Storyland and Zeitgeist, but uh, we are excited to have you on uh, to really talk about your whole career trajectory. Uh, from uh, the Cal Arts days, and in a lot of ways, I, I feel like you're one of the few, the proud <laughs> that have followed kind of almost wow. Walt's trajectory from 2D animation to theme parks and beyond. So this is awesome. Yeah, you know what? Yeah, and it's it's kind of a um, it was an interesting um, set of coincidences that kind of led me to where I I ended up. Because it was never really planned. It was just opportunities that, that popped up along the way. And I'm kind of an oppor- opportunist <laughs> if, if something's there. And, and I was always guided by two things. I'd ask myself, is this more fun than what I am doing now? <laughs> and if the answer was yes, I pursued it. <laughs> well, that, that jump from 2D to 3D, I can't imagine a, a more perfect uh, either uh, IP or theme land than, than Toontown. Um, yeah, that just seems like such a perfect fit to <laughs> bring you into that world. Yeah. Yeah. And again, it was an opportunity that was just presented to me. It wasn't something I would looking back. I can't think of anything that I actively pursued. Mm-hmm. It was always 
And I was very fortunate because there were always people around me. You mentioned Marty Scalar early on. And probably more than anybody in my career and in my life, I have to look to Marty for seeing more in my, me than I saw in myself. Mm-hmm and always providing me with great opportunities. And I also know that Marty, you know, understood Imagineering, understood the, um, the whole, what it takes to make a great theme park attraction or to work in the themed entertainment industry. So I always felt um, honored when I, I got an opportunity from Marty because I knew if anybody knew what they were doing, it was Marty. Mm-hmm. And... Um, and I, I got to say, you know, I'm, I probably wouldn't have, you know, got to do all the things that I did had it not been for Marty early on. Now, there were others, too, along the way. Tony Baxter was very instrumental in, in getting me involved in, um, in uh, Imagineering. And then, then once I was in Imagineering, there were great people along the way. So I really have I owe a debt of gratitude to all those along the way who saw more than me than I saw in myself. <laughs> well, isn't that, the, isn't that a lot of the way that uh, we see this industry kind of flow <clears throat> is that there can be this hand, one, one hand reaching up, another hand reaching down, uh, helping people kind of sort of move along the way. Certainly there's yeah. politics and there's all that stuff, but you do find right. a sense of sort of camaraderie and brother, brotherhood yeah. that helps. And, you know, and I try, I try to remember that even today. I mean, any chance I have to do something like we're doing today where I can pass along a little knowledge, pass along a story that someone might learn from. Definitely love working with uh, the newer generation of artists that are out there. Um, you know, I, I was given, you know, there were certain circumstances and opportunities that I was given through my education at CalArts, through the various people I got to work with, both at Disney Animation and at Imagineering. I, mean, I was very fortunate because... Um, I was of the generation that we were we were the the last group that got to be handed down the the magic tablets of knowledge <laughs> right. from Disney's nine old yeah. men. Yeah, right. You know, I I got to work with Frank Thomas and Ollie Johnson and um, Eric Larson. I don't know if these yeah, names well, mean, mean anything a lot. <laughs> to the theme park world, but um, these were the guys that worked directly with Walt. I can I can honestly say, you know, Mark Davis was a good friend. I used to go to his his house and drink martinis with him. So um, I was Ward Kimball. I got to know Ward pretty well. I'd go and hang in his, um, in his train and toy collection and over in San Gabriel. And and in fact, um, after Ward passed away, I actually bought a big collection of his, his art from his family. Um, So yeah, I was very, very, and I, and I don't take it for granted. I mean, and these guys were great teachers, some more generous than others. And, you know, their, their desire to teach and their willingness to, to give information. But all of them, you know, if you, if you sat with your ears open and your heart open and your mind open, you always got some gem from them that you could take and, uh, and apply to something you were doing. Yeah. You know, I, I think that, again, that, that transition from 2D into the third dimension <coughs> with Toontown is so... Uh, unique. I, I had a personal unique experience. Um, I had just started at Disney, uh, and I climbed over uh, the hill illegally to peer <laughs> on the almost complete uh, Toontown Uh-oh. construction site, and it was kind of a, a vision of a of a different type of reality. And, and it was just, I think, the perfect uh, uh, se- arrival sequence that I wish everyone, <laughs> you know, kind of could stumble, <laughs> you know, upon that kind of first view, but. Um, what mm-hmm. I mean, gosh, what a paradigm shift in really the first IP based land. A lot of times we think about Harry Potter and some other stuff, but to to make a decision to uh, commit to doing uh, an entire theme land, uh, especially for the original Disneyland Park around yeah. uh, an original IP, and then and then even marrying that with the Fab Five uh, that had never had a physical environment. Uh, can you share some of the kind of creative heavy lifting that that was involved with kind of landing the plane on? That big idea. Yeah. Um, you know, as you said, it was, again, um, it, I, I believe it was Marty and others who saw what I was doing. When I, when I made the transition from, from feature animation to uh, Imagineering, uh, the first, first few things I got to do were character-based uh, projects. They, they were looking to redo the Tiki Room 
down in Florida. Right. And remember, this this was when Michael Eisner and Jeffrey Katzenberg had just come on board, and they had all their Hollywood friends. They were making all these movies with with Bette Midler and Danny DeVito, <laughs> and so they wanted to use all this talent and re redesign and redress the birds and do this crazy show that was basically caricatured birds based on these 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 actors. So um, I designed the whole show, you know designing the birds to look like these characters. Uh, I was working with Kevin Rafferty and um, Mark Rhodes, I think was the other other writer. And the, and the three of us came up with this show and Marty loved it. And I remember he was having a hard time getting a meeting with uh, Michael Eisner. And again, another great Marty story where it showed his, his dedication and passion when he liked something. I remember him having, asking us, and this was before computers and before you could do a, you know, a, a uh, you know, do a deck online and, yeah. and have a keynote presentation. So he asked us to put together a book of the whole show with all my drawings in it because he knew he was going to be in an airplane with Michael and wanted to seize the opportunity to sit with Michael and show him the show. Um, the show never got done, but what it did do was give a, a lot of people an insight into what I could do and what I could bring to Imagineering. In fact, it was it was Tony Baxter who really pushed to bring me over to Imagineering because he said at the time um, there were a lot of people that understood creating environments. Um, but he he said he, we were mi missing, and, and I will never compare myself with Mark Davis because I put Mark on a pedestal. <laughs> but I do think I brought a lot of the same kind of thinking that Mark brought because we came from the same place. You know, thinking about how to stage things simply through, because animation was all about, you had 24 frames mm -hmm. to do a scene and you had to be able to, you know, quickly understand, you know, how am I going to communicate this particular thing quickly, effectively, understand what the story point was or is and make it funny, make it sad, make it dramatic, whatever it takes to, to get that across. So, um, so I, I think, and I, and I always tried to, through everything I ever did, I always tried to think that way about, you know, is it entertaining? Is it fun? Is it, is it communicating? And those were all, all tools that I, I, I learned in animation and, was, and brought with me. So, um, so getting back to Toontown, <laughs> <laughs> as I'm rambling on here. Uh, so they saw that I had that ability. And, you know, at the time they had done this Mickey's Birthday Land down in Florida. Yes. And it was highly successful, mostly because what it did was guaranteed the guests a place where they could see Mickey. Mm -hmm. And that's what was missing at Disneyland. But um, fortunately, again, it was, and everything in life, you know, is about timing, being at the right place at the right time and, you know, making the, the planets have converged and you just happen to be standing there. And that's what happened with, with Toontown. So they wanted to do this land where you could meet the characters. Um, you know, and the company was in this huge, huge boom, building boom at the time. They were doing Euro Disneyland, yeah. the studio down in Florida, uh, they were Typhoon Lagoon. I mean, it was the beginning of the Disney decade. And, you know, with Michael and Frank Wells, um, they, they, they wanted to leave their mark. And they, they certainly were pushing to get all this stuff done. Um, and so initially it was just going to be, Toontown was just going to be the little neighborhood where you could meet Mickey. And the main thing was about meeting Mickey. But <clears throat> Michael Eisner also had this new character and this new movie they were working on called Roger Rabbit yep. and wanted to make Roger kind of his Mickey Mouse and uh, was willing to go big with that. Um, and so we, we had started working on, on Toontown and it was just going to be Mickey's Toontown in the little neighborhood. Uh, and we were about... I don't know, well, well into the design when we got the challenge, not the challenge, the, the direction from those guys to do the whole Roger Rabbit side of the project, which was the downtown. And at first I was, oh, God, I go, how the heck are we going to make, you know, this new cartoon work with these classic characters? But in the end, it all worked out great because it was all one world. You know, we were creating the, this cartoon world that you could walk walk into, and it actually created a nice counterpoint to what we were doing with the Mickey piece, which was this cute little suburban kind of neighborhood. And then we had this great contrast of the downtown, which was 
from, you know, the Toontown from Roger Rabbit, which was kind of an edgy place, yeah, you right. know, it was very urban and brick. So we had the, the cute little neighborhood houses with, you know, green trees and the green mountain behind it. And then the other side, this kind of urban piece to it. So in the end, it turned out to have become a nice yin to the yang of what we were doing. And also um, really true to the original and, uh, <clears throat> uh, Roger Rabbit film. Uh, which uh, were all those characters, and even the Disney Warner characters kind of yeah. coexisted. They, I mean, they were just all living awesomely in the same world. Yeah, so, cool. yeah, so, so it all were. Bottom line, it was again very fortuitous that it all came together, and um, I think it works as a cohesive piece of, you know, environmental storytelling. And yes, I'm proud to say I think it was one of the first real IP-driven lands. Not so much like. Um, the Harry Potter world where, you know, it was so based directly on the movie, the things that people had seen. I mean, we had to create kind of our world more because a lot of the, the places that we wanted to bring guests to really didn't exist. Like there wasn't a Mickey's house, right. but we knew enough about Mickey and his character and the, and all the, the little, we watched, you know, hundreds of shorts and, and uh, we were able to get into the head of Mickey, you know, the, the, the gestalt Mickey <laughs> and figure out, you know, you know, who he would be. And, and we actually, there was actually some arguments uh, with some individuals whose names I won't mention, uh, some of the higher ups who didn't like the idea that we were putting Mickey in this cute little bungalow. You know, they wanted to see something more grandiose. They said, well, you know, he's the corporate oh, icon. Oh, he was, yeah. We said, we said, yeah, but, you know, Mickey is every man. Yeah, you know, he yeah. was the, the leader of the gang. And, <laughs> you know, and he's a sweet. And he, it's, it's more his, his sweet character, character. It's more his character in the films that he plays than it is his corporate. I'm the actor yeah. who rules. Ex I just recently exactly. did a deep dive on the story of Toontown and the idea that it it takes place like you know tomorrowland takes place in well i guess 1986 back when 55 mm -hmm. in 1955 <laughs> and uh frontierland takes some place sometime in the 1850s i suppose but toontown is actually set in a date july 17th 1955 it's it's meant to be that date and uh that uh it's always opening day in toontown which is a really yeah. really cool uh <laughs> cool concept that that still stands nobody thinks of mm. that when they walk in there but uh, there's the hints and clues i well i find it kind of ironic that uh you know i mean i think you you're right you totally made it your own and you had to do some pretty creative uh, art direction to transfer those 2d films and and all those different styles and genres into a real believable place but I find it ironic that you know kind of the one of the first ip based lands and then uh, ultimately getting to to do uh a couple of uh kind of uh, original uh, IP lands, I guess, uh, ground up at Hong Kong Disneyland with, uh, is it Grizzly Gulch uh, and Mystic Manor? Um, and, you know, with your background in, in character animation, it does remind me of kind of those Claude Coates, uh, Mark Davis magic combo where, where you know, from mm. a blank slate, you create this instantly understandable, believable mm -hmm. world, you know, with rich character and setting round up uh which one was more fun for you and, and uh was that kind of daunting was it uh, just a unique opportunity that uh was one of maybe one of the last opportunities that any of us get in the industry for a long yeah, time well, well well for for me it literally was one of the last opportunity because it was one of the last things i i got to do before i left disney um was uh, was it more you know what every, every project was fun and i always I always tried to look for the fun in what we were doing. And um, I hope, and I think if you went back and talked to the people that were on my teams, you know, I, that's what I really tried to instill in the, in the teams that, uh, that did these projects. Especially, you know, as you, you know, when I was, when I was doing Toontown, I was still actually still designing. I, a lot of the, the little, the little buildings and the houses, you know, Goofy's house and, Minnie's house. You know, I did the original, you know, first concept drawing. We had others that took them. I mean, Don Carson, who is, in my opinion, one of the, the greatest, you know, theme park designers um, out there still today. In fact, um, you know, he did a lot of the, the great work for us. You know, we had a good, good team of people. But I, I'm, I'm, back then, I was still actually designing. By the time I got around to when we were doing Hong Kong Disneyland, um, I was actually in charge of three portfolios 
at the time when we started the expansion on Hong Kong. I was uh, the senior vice president in charge of the Tokyo Resort, and we were doing major attractions there. We were doing uh, 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 the, the uh, Tower of Terror in, in Tokyo Disney Seas. We were doing the Monsters attraction in Tokyo Disneyland. Um, simultaneously, I was given the assignment to go into Hong Kong Disneyland and lead the, the design effort on the expansion there. And then if that wasn't enough, <laughs> at the same time, uh, I, I remember being taken to a, uh, some industry dinner by, um, by at the time, uh, Bruce Vaughn and, um, oh God, who was the gentleman? The, I forget who the, 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 the executive was at the time. Um, and they, they said, hey, you know, we got this cruise ship thing and, you know, Wing Chow has been doing a great job, but Wing wants to move on. And, you know, uh, we think you're the right guy for the job. And I foolishly said, yes. <laughs> you wanted to see so, more of the world, I think. <laughs> well, actually, to that point, that's, that's, a, that's a good segue, Freddie. <laughs> uh, in one year, I did um, six around the world trips during that that period because I was, um, like I said, we had projects coming out of the ground in Tokyo. We had projects coming out of the ground in Hong Kong and we were building the ships in Germany. So I would usually either fly in either east or west around the globe, stopping in Tokyo, Hong Kong and Germany or Germany, Tokyo, Hong Kong. And that was crazy. Um, but my point about bringing all that up, by, by that point in my career, it was really about, I felt I saw myself as the guy who made sure everybody saw, were, were focused in on what were the core attributes of what we were trying to mm -hmm. do. Um, and I always, I, I use this analogy uh, of the, um, the conductor in an orchestra. Mm -hmm. and, and a great conductor, he has to know the score really well and the nuances of what makes that piece of music great. So th that I equate then to the, what is the core story idea that we're trying to do and what is the design aesthetic mm. that we're trying, trying to achieve in that project. So that's number two. And then the second thing a conductor does is understand his musicians and understands their strengths and weaknesses. You know, you've got your first chair musicians. Those are the guys that, you know, really know what they're doing. But, but and then the third thing is to make sure everybody knows their part and what they're doing and acknowledging them. And even if it's a guy playing the triangle that's hitting one little bell note, you know, every 20 bars or something, he, you got to make him understand that that's really important because without that little ding, this whole thing isn't going to work. So I really tried to keep that as kind of the way I looked at what I was doing, especially when I got to that point when I had so many people working and so much stuff mm -hmm. going on. Um, and, and to keep it light and to keep it fun yeah. and to keep it moving. Yeah. Well, that's a, a, a really important part of uh, great leadership. I mean, I, I know when I've worked under great leaders that uh, think that way as a conductor, uh, to use your example. I know when I've worked for them that it's not, you know, it's it's either their way or the highway or they've uh, they forget that uh, they're being held up by so many. And uh, it's it's so important, especially with creatives. Right yeah. to to oh, be yeah. listening. Oh yeah, we're an eccentric group. Yes, <laughs> to be <laughs> to be sure. It's ironic. You almost uh, end up uh, taking on some of uh, Marty's uh, kind of type of uh, leadership uh, requirements, even well, though you, you could also draw circles uh, really well. It, it, is there any times where it was kind of just almost frustrating because you you would be tempted to just uh, try to black out some time and, and design. You know, where you know, and, and I did, you know, and I, it's not that I completely stopped designing, uh, even like a lot of the work I'm doing today. Um, you know, I, I try to, you know, do as many little, little kind of idea sketches and art direction sketches. Um, but again, I always know that and try to understand the person that I'm handing it off to, you know, what their strengths are. And I, I, and I always hope to be surprised that they're going to take take what I did and make it better or maybe put a different spin on it. And that actually goes back to one of the principles we learned in animation and what they did at the studio. And it was always called, it was called plussing. And the idea was not to change what the person working with you or who was part of the, the, the process, like in animation, you know, you had, 
You had animators, cleanup artists, layout artists. And, um, and again, learning from the guys that worked directly with Walt, they always talked about how he told them to try to plus what you were doing. And that didn't mean change it. That just was to look at the core of what was being done and how your piece, you know, how you could take your piece and make it better. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I learned, you know, even though I, I might have had a different vision for something in my head than what another artist had done to kind of try to disconnect my vision from what they did and look at it with open and honest eyes and say, hey, okay, this is not what I did, but is, is, is it different? And if it's different, is it better? Mm -hmm. Or if it's different, does it you know, have a, uh, a, a, a stronger whatever about it? But you know, trying to be honest about, about you know, disconnecting our, our, own, our own prejudices or our own preconceived idea about something. And, most of, and if you can do that, most of the time you're going to be surprised. Yeah. And the work that you're going to get from people, you know, um, and they're going to feel more appreci appreciated too. Yeah, and empowered to do something better the next time. They're, they're, yes, they won't have right. that fear. Uh, right, and, and that was kind of the whole prevailing, that this whole idea of plussing and you know, working as a team that goes all the way back to the, you know, those, those formative years in animation. Uh, and I think that's why those films were always so incredible. You know? and, um, and I know, I know because you know, I went to school with John Lasseter and a lot of what John brought to Pixar and why those Pixar films, you know, the early, well, even to today, but I mean, that's kind of what I think John left behind at, at Pixar was that idea of the team and plusing the work and, you know, staying, staying focused on the core story ideas and the character personalities. I mean, those were all the things that we learned back at CalArts. Mm -hmm. Powerful stuff. You know, I, I might be mistaken in this, but I think like Grizzly Gulch and Mystic Point were maybe the last two non-IP based lands, at least by Disney and Universal in the industry. What, what was the process like of getting those greenlit and kind of conceived and approved? Was it? You know, I, I, have, I have to thank <laughs> the um, Hong Kong government because, you know, the, the park there in Hong Kong was a partnership with the Hong Kong government and, um, and Disney. And in fact, the Hong Kong government had just, you know, like Disney had 49% and they had 51% controlling, um, uh, control over the, the park. And um, they really wanted to have bragging rights. They wanted to have something that none of the other parks had. Uh, and it, it was, and they asked for original ideas. Yeah. And originally when we did the expansion and we expanded the park by 25%, you know, that, that park was, was built during the, um, that time when Paul Pressler felt like you could do the minimal amount to call something a Disney park. But what he didn't realize that, you know, like a great brand, like imagine going to a McDonald's and you couldn't get a Big Mac. Right. That was the analogy because it's too expensive. You know, if we put, if we put two pieces of beef <laughs> in that Big Mac, it's going to cost X. So we're going to call this thing a Big Mac, but only put one piece of beef in it. Well, no, people are going to go, what are you trying to sell me here, buddy? Where's the beef? Um, yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, and that, that was Hong Kong Disneyland. And I don't fault the design. I never faulted Imagineering for, you know, some of the, the hiccups that came out of that period the initial Disney's California Adventure, because if you look, you know, at the same time Disney's California Adventure was being designed and built, they were building TDS. TDS being one of the most magnificent parks ever built. Same Imagineering did both parks, but it was just under different direction yeah. from management. So um, yeah, that's a remarkable so, um, sort of uh, split. You've got you've got the the most magnificent park, and then some of the oh well we'll, we'll get to them, <laughs> and, and you, yeah. you definitely see the difference. But but and and for our listeners, nobody by the can way, blame we, the we, time. We've done uh, two episodes with Tom Morris, and and you know his yeah. heart and passion, you know, and uh, the 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 pixie dust that runs in his blood, you know, comes through. And and I I definitely had an amazing experience taking uh, my son, uh, who uh, I was able to uh, basically. <coughs> take right from the orphanage uh, and run him through Hong Kong Disneyland, probably the funnest Disney day in my life. Oh my gosh. Um, and so, yeah, it was just story. really epic and able to do that right after the park opened. And it really almost 
to me felt like going to Disneyland uh, in 1955. The so there was something to <laughs> yeah. that minimum, you know, no, part. No, I'm, I'm very good friends with Tom. In fact, Tom still does a lot of work with us, uh, with Zeitgeist. And, and pretty recently we did, we brainstormed some cool stuff together. So, you know, um, no, that's why I said I would never fault any of the people. You know, when I was handed an assignment, they said to fix this. Well, it really wasn't broken. It just wasn't living up to the Disney expectation. Sure. You know, it wasn't, you know, what the brand, what people know of the brand and expect from the brand. Um, well, you almost like so completed back, the, it was really like completing it, you know, or, or completing yeah, exactly. the, the right size and, and literally completing exactly. the loop around the river. How do you tell a story when people listen with more than their ears? Stories change lives. They make us remember, but only when they're felt and not just heard. Storyland Studios builds the impossible. We turn big ideas into reality. We tell stories in three dimensions to stir the senses so you can walk into places you've only seen in your dreams, in real life and real time. Storyland's artists, architects, and artisans take stories out of the imagination and build tangible dreams that leave lasting impressions and memories that endure for years. What's your story? Storyland Studios is themed entertainment, destination design, production, and fabrication. Connect with the team at Storyland Studios to get started building your impossible dream today. Visit StorylandStudios.com or call now, 800-218-1932. That's 800-218-1932. Storyland Studios, your big idea's best ally. So, you know, so getting back to your question about the, um, the two original IP lands. Initially, there were going to be three original IP lands in, uh, in the expansion for Hong Kong. Uh, the third being we were going to do this um, Arctic kind of mm. land because uh, we thought Hong Kong where it's a thousand degrees <laughs> and how cool would it be to actually, really literally cool to go into this like um, Arctic out, out station, you know, somewhere, uh, you know, in the, in the North Pole. Um, or South Pole, I can't remember which one it was, but it was snowy and we had some cool little toboggan-like rides and things in it. But um, again, it was our uh, Hong Kong partner who was a little concerned because the um, kind of the competitor park, which they are also part owners in the, the Hong Kong government was Ocean Park. Mm -hmm. And they were also in the middle of an expansion. And one of the lands they were doing, even though it was very different from what we were doing, uh, it still had this kind of Arctic theme. So, and we were well into the design. In fact, we had designed this whole third land, built the model, started drawings. Um, and they said, no, well, you can't do it. And I remember all, again, all the angst. And so we had to scramble quickly. And that's why we made the decision to do Toy Story Land because they had just finished it or were in the process of finishing it in Paris. Um, I got a quick, quick, quick trip to Paris out of it, flew over there met with the designers um, and we were able to, you know, quit and they already had all the drawings for the rides and such. So our job was mostly with that to make it fit on a, a piece of property that was quite different from what they had in Paris. So we got to make some changes and work with the staging on some of the things. But um, it was basically just, you know, lifting what they had done there. And we turned that thing around in less than a year. Wow. And got, and got it open really quick. Um, <clears throat> So we staggered the opening of the three lands, first Toy Story Land, because, again, the, the rides were the manufacturers had all the molds and the plans, and also it was quickly to turn, turn that around. Um, Grizz, Grizzly was second. Um, not that it was uh, easy land to do, because it was very, um, uh, if you've seen it, there's a lot of, of uh, interface and between the, the landscape and the coaster and the buildings. We thought, I think one of the most interesting pieces of, uh, of the, or piece of that design is the way the coaster works with the rest of the, the land. And again, tip of the hat to another unsung hero in our industry, uh, Robert Coltrane. Uh, Robert was, I mean, he, he's one of those guys that 
worked on his hand is on so many projects, but hmm. you never hear about hmm. it. Like he did, he did um, Everest at um, the initial design for Everest at uh, at Walt Disney World. He, he and um, and uh, and others worked on. I think he was one of the first to help work out the whole Midway Mania, the initial, the original Midway Mania. Anyway, Ro- Robert can't say enough great things about Robert Coltrane. He has since retired from Disney as well. Um, but he was the one that worked out how the coaster worked with the, and and we had we had very tight budget on all three lands, and I think one of the things I'm most proud of is how much we got for that budget. We had the same budget as um, they had for, and they were doing it around the same time for Cars Land at Disneyland. Now Cars Land has a lot of you know a lot of rock work, gigantic rock work. You know, very complicated ride system with the, um, the the racing car car ride. But I mean, basically, there they got three three rides and one land for the the same amount of money that we got three lands <laughs> with um, three, four, five, six rides. You know, uh, restaurants. I mean, we got quite quite a bit out of it. So again, I think it was a testament to the team and testament to us trying to make sure that every nickel. <laughs> got in front of the guests. You know, we really fought hard mm-hmm. and the back of house stuff is always important. Um, and making sure that we always, and this was another thing I always tried to do, and this goes back to the animation, you know, always understanding the hierarchy of what you're trying to do when you're communicating something. Even in something, even when when you look at a scene in a movie or in an animated film, and, and this is also a lot of great learnings from Mark Davis. He was a king at, at this. And I often use the example of, uh, of course, Pirates is probably the, the gold standard for great, you know, visual storytelling. Yep. Um, and something like um, the dunking of the mayor scene, when you turn that corner, if you think about how much information is put in front of you in that initial turn, but you're never confused because Mark was a genius at knowing how to create a hierarchy of importance. Mm. You know, the first thing you needed to see was the mayor being dunked because that's the core story idea. And then your eye flows to, you know, the other, the other citizens that are next to be dumped in there. And then the, the one guy with the gun. Anyway, if you study that, that, that is, there, there's a, a lesson in great, clear hierarchy of storytelling. Mm-hmm. So, um, we always try. We always would, would sit when we were designing these things and say, "Okay, a, what's the a thing? What's the most important thing we want guests to focus on and to take away? And then what's the b thing? The thing that supports that? And then how does everything else work to support b and a? Um, and if you do that, then you're not going to be spending money in stupid places where people aren't going to look. I mean, I walk through a lot of stuff today, and I see these. Beautifully, I mean, almost overly done, you know, shops or queue lines or whatever. And um, I'm impressed, but I'll also have to stop and go. They didn't need to spend that much to, to tell that story idea or to create the emotional connection to that thing. Yeah. Um, and a lot of that, uh, again, um, is based out of experience, but also based out of that those learnings from animation and the masters about you know where where to put the bang where you, where to get the you know the most bang from the buck it's about understanding how you want to communicate something and creating a hierarchy and how you're communicating yeah. it makes yeah. so much sense when you're being super efficient because it takes so much work for every frame uh that you're not going to be <laughs> yeah. wasting a lot of time That's animating right. unnecessary uh, stuff you yeah. bet not, yeah. not a lot left on the cutting room floor when it takes that much effort yeah. for every frame so over there on Mystic Point is the uh, first uh, uh, themed ride uh, with a reference to a member of the Society of Explorers and Adventurers, Dr. Henry yeah. Mystic. Well, the first entire themed so, land. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Based yeah. on the that's right. a C member. So, uh, that's, that's been sort of a fun little track to follow yes. uh, for the fans. Yeah. And I think it's it's one of these sort of Imagineer. We you know, It's almost like the, the uh, Pixar... Uh, Easter eggs. There's always some secretly yeah. hidden thing, and I think you guys have done a really good job about doing, or or really tried hard to build that story into that. Tell me a little bit about that, and like how that comes about, and what 
where you guys go with that, with an idea that's, hey, how do I take the obscure and elevate it just a little bit so that people are curious? It's, and you know what? It's not so much, it's obscure, but um, I, and I talk about this actually in a lot of the work I do with the UX groups about storytelling and how you apply storytelling. There's two ways you apply storytelling, I believe, in the, in the theme park. And there's, there's, sto- there's story as narrative and there's story as subtext. Um, narrative, I mean, of course, is when it's based, usually based on a known IP, you know, something like Harry Potter or like Monsters or, or Toy Story, you know, where people know the stories, they know the characters, so your job then as a theme park designer is to make sure you, you give the guests those trigger points, those things that they, they saw in the movie, they heard the music, you know, they love those characters. So make sure that, you know, you're, you're, you're giving them that kind of a physical narrative of this thing they, they know from the film. Yes. But then the, sub, the story of subtext, um, which actually we used a lot on the cruise ship, you know, is creating, cre- either creating a story or taking a known story, and you're using it more as a design tool. Mm. Everybody, it's, it's kind of a, a script or a manifesto that everybody working on that project buys into, agrees to it, um, and then uses it to make your design choices. So going back to Tokyo Disney Sea, you know, they had created the Society of Explorers and Adventurers and, um, and we used that to create the, the backstory for our Tower of Terror there, which was Harrison Hightower, yep. who was loosely based and physically based on Joe Rohde. <laughs> <laughs> so we kind of took that and ran with it um, because when we did our Tower of Terror in Tokyo, um, the Japanese audience had no reference to, to the, the old Twilight Rod Zone. Sterling Twilight Zone. Yeah, exactly. So we had to come up with our own. And it had to work in American Waterfront, the bigger theme of American Waterfront in Tokyo Disney Sea. Um, so we came up with this backstory of this this adventurer who was not the most scrupulous and went around the world, kind of pilfering, you know, artifacts to to populate his big hotel. And then, of course, one of them is cursed and blah blah blah. So so there's a there was a lot of story there, and we actually. Uh, one of the, again, another one of those great theme park unsung heroes is this guy Chuck Ballou, who's done a, did a ton of work for me in, in, in Tokyo, um, and he really did. He <clears throat> he was one of those guys that would dive way deep into things, and he actually made a comic book uh-huh. about he did about uh, about Harrison Hightower and going to Africa and, and stealing Shuriki Utundu and bringing him back and. And that kind of became our our design Bible, you know. And once we knew, you know, who he was and what he did and what his personality was about, then it's easy when you can start making your design choices. When you say, well, what would the inside of his hotel look like? Well, he visited this place and he brought back this, so it's going to look like like this. So we had so that's and that's a good example as um, story as a subtext. it's not that it doesn't manifest itself in a physical way the same way story as narrative does, but it's not always so overt. I mean, because you, you, it's the same kind of tools you're using, um, but um, a lot of it is just about what's happening below the surface, mm-hmm. what the designers are using below the surface. Mm-hmm. So we, we, kind of, we took that, that, same, that same kind of thinking uh, and applied it to... to Mystic Point and Lord Henry Mystic. And he just so happened to be, he was a lot like um, Harrison Hightower, you know, traveled around the world collecting artifacts, but he did it from this pure place, from almost from this elevated place. He, you know, he studied, again, this is all yeah, the backstory yeah. stuff that we came up with, you know, understanding who he was, you know, and then creating the relationship between him and Albert the monkey. You know, we wanted to show this kind of maternal side to him, that he had the softer side and, <clears throat> And that um, the monkey becomes like his son, but the monkey is also our surrogate. You know, yes. we design the ride that you're kind of seeing it through the monkey's eyes, and the monkey goes through, kind of looking at you know Joseph Campbell's hero's journey about you know discovering uh, you know his 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 destiny and what he should and shouldn't do, and he learns things along the way. It's all it's also a little analogous to the journey to the west. Mm-hmm. You know the 
the, 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 the monkey king having to learn from his, his mistakes and comes out the other side a better person. So all this is kind of subtext stuff that, and it's there and a lot of it, you know, if you dig just a little below the surface, you're going to find it, but it just works as a great design tool. And it also is fun, like where we're going back to this whole See the, the, the Society of Explorers and Adventurers. In fact, even one of the last things on the cruise ship that I worked on when we redid the play area on, um, on I think it was on the Disney Magic, because it had the old play area and then we turned it into the newer play area that was similar to what we did on the newer ships. Um, we incorporated, there's a little understory of another member of the SEA. It was a, and it's a woman character and I can't remember what we, we call Mary her. Oceaneer. In, it's, there it's, she there is. She Mary Ocean. <clears throat> there she is. So it all gets it's all connected. And hopefully I hope there's some some imagineers out there working on something right now and taking taking that core idea and going somewhere with it. Because I think it's fun. Well the other uh, tie in with Mystic Point that just makes perfect sense in Hong Kong is that that uh, fun whimsical, redemptive way of tying in that legacy of British colonialism. Uh, oh, yes. But yeah, kind of appropriate for that specific context. Yeah, but, but, but that's always not a really good story. <laughs> right, exactly. So we had to gloss over that <laughs> a little, a little tricky, bit. tricky, uh, fine line there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're, yeah, you're, you're walking on uh, kind of... Often it depends on oh, who so, you make yeah. the hero. In Harrison Hightower's yes. <laughs> case, you get to say, well, there oh. he is. He's, he's the bad guy. We don't like yeah. him. <laughs> um, to, uh, you know, Mel, you brought up, um, uh, or Joe, you brought up uh, the the cruise line. Um, uh, but as Mel and I were prepping for the conversation, he brought up the Art of Animation, which is one of my favorite books, uh, and uh, then the Alchemy of Imagineering. Right? There's this blend of the two, uh, which, when you take, I understand it in animation. <clears throat> I understand it in theme parks in those those spaces but now you've brought both of those into the cruise ship uh so uh tell, tell us about that uh you know a cruise ship seems limiting but you managed to do so well in that in the disney cruise line well, well first thank you for that compliment um you know it just it goes back to the all that same thinking i tried and my teams tried to bring to to all the things we did. And that's about, you know, thinking about entertainment, thinking about the story and, um, and always, of course, the Disney brand and mm -hmm. what guest expectations are for the Disney brand. Um, and then, you know, the cruise ship, my, my involvement with the cruise ship actually went back to the original two ships, the, the uh, magic and the wonder. I worked on those back in the um, early and mid nineties <clears throat> In a much lesser capacity than I did when, of course, when I was in charge of the design on the, on the dream and the fantasy. But, um, but again, it was this, it was this, the same thing. In fact, I had I had learned I'd gotten some good learnings from those early days on the initial design of the cruise ships because at the time when those ships were being designed, there was really no family cruising market. Mm -hmm. There were uh, there was one uh, I think it was the big red boat. That's right. That had licensed Disney characters, and then Disney pulled the license, and they had Warner Brother characters. But the whole idea of creating something for the family was an afterthought. Mm. You know, it wasn't part of the core design of the experience. And um, so, when we initially started to work on the the, the original ships, um, and at that time there was Disney Development Company, and they were leading the design. <clears throat> And they had just brought Imagineering and kind of helped with some of the, quote, kind of specialty things. But the audience at that time was mostly older people or young people um, and not really families. So they were, there was this concern or this, this caution about how much Disney are we going to put on this ship um, because we don't want to alienate that cruise audience. Because at the time, that was the bread and butter of the industry. Mm -hmm. So you can understand where their thinking was. You know, where they, they were careful about, oh, my God, if Mickey Mouse is everywhere, you know, this is going to, you know, it might alienate these people. Ironically, but we had the, the same, same challenge when uh, Disney bought the Disneyland Hotel in California, finally. The, the convention oh, yeah? salespeople yeah. were so nervous about losing these massive room blocks of conventions because they thought everyone's just going to put in Mickey Mouse bed sheets. Uh, but that same kind of thinking <laughs> that... Uh, we want to keep the core, yeah. you know, adult business doing its thing without messing it up with all this 
Disney magic and wonder stuff. <laughs> so so that that was kind of the the fine line that we had to walk. I mean, it was acknowledging the strength and the power of the brand. And, you know, when getting back to my Big Mac analogy, you know, if someone goes to McDonald's, they go to McDonald's because and by the way, I don't think I've ever had a McDonald's, but it's a great <laughs> it's, it comes <laughs> it's an so example. Well it's a it's a good it's a good analogy, but you know, if um, people go go, you know, to buy a certain brand, a Starbucks, for example, you know, because it delivers a certain product that's consistent and they know what it's all about and it and they make some kind of connection with that product. Um, so on the cruise ship, we we had to find that we had to walk this fine line between how much Disney and where to put the Disney and how to modulate the Disney. Um, and early on, we had a lot of discussions about the fact that it was kind of a different storytelling form. You know, the theme park, you, you tell stories in three to 20 minutes. You know, a coaster is maybe a two to three minute experience, uh, maybe a nice sit down show or a 4D theater might be anywhere between 10 to 15 minutes, maybe 20 minutes. Uh, but it's a pretty, it's short form storytelling, you know, and, um, and it's usually targeted storytelling. Whereas on the cruise ship, we knew we were going to have guests for three, five, seven, or 12 days. Mm-hmm. And so you had to start thinking about how you were going to modulate the Disney experience over that many days. Uh, and again, thinking about, you know, the, the, your, your audience, the demographic makeup, you know, a lot of dads that are going to be, you know, they're, they're getting <laughs> dragged onto the ship by their kids. And they probably don't want to be there. They used up a um, v- but, bunch of vacation days. <laughs> you bet. So, hey, we, we got to think about all of them, you know. And so creating great adult, you know, a separate adult area with the quiet pool for the adults and the nightclub district, you know, that had some pretty sophisticated nightclubs with entertainment and, you know, great bars, um, you know, but balance that with these great kids areas and then thinking about, well, you know, what were those those um, kind of communal experiences where we could bring the family together? You know, they would, that was usually at mealtime. That's why something like Animator's Palette made so much mm-hmm, sense, you mm-hmm. know, something that and it, it kind of leveled the playing field too. that everybody could go in there and have a great experience. So, you know. Even though you think, oh, this is so different from the theme park or animated films, I think if you really, again, scratch below the surface and think about, you know, how do you deliver on the promise of Disney and the brand of Disney, you know, the core things have to be there. It's just more in this regard about thinking about how you modulate them and how much you put where and to what, you know, and how much you emphasize them where. Yeah, I, mean, I think the mix is, is, ends up being just right. And then going beyond Disney, um, you know, how does that how is that applied on some of your favorite projects in in China and beyond? Um, you know, because again, that range from being able to do a four or five minute attraction to a four or five day fully encapsulated experience, you can do it all. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's, I don't want to sound like a broken record, but it's just using all those same tools and all that same kind of thinking. I mean, I am who I am. You know, you can't change a tiger's stripes. <laughs> you know, I, I, was, I, I was born in Burbank, California in the shadow of the Disney Studios and, and grew up watching, uh, you know, Walt on Sunday night and, you know, being in love with Disney cartoons, but also loving Warner Brothers cartoons, you know, and that kind, that kind of formed my way of thinking and my sensibilities and then being able to go through the Cal Arts experience mm-hmm. and have the influence from all the, my great fellow students there and the and the great teachers so you know it's kind of just you know in my dna the kind the way i look at things and the way i I want to approach doing things and making sure it's it's entertaining and fun and and always good communication is at the core of it i mean a lot of the work that i'm doing currently with uh, in the ux sector is it all comes down to communicating and emotional connection you know i think what going back to walt and his great quote, you know, you know, behind every smile there's a tear, or is it behind every tear there's a smile? You know, that idea that, you know, you need to touch people emotionally. Mm-hmm. And I think that's and that's part of the strength of having a good IP, you know, it does a lot of the heavy lifting for you in that regard. You know, if you saw the Harry Potter films, you know who those characters are, you laughed with them, you cried with them, you know. Um, and so, you know, it's a, a lot of it is just, you know, under, understanding 
human nature, human emotions, and making sure you're always thinking about that and remembering your user, yeah. you know? Who's coming to this experience and what do they want to get out of this experience? Uh, and making sure you're satisfying them, giving them, you know, that, that emotional thing that they're going to take home with them. That's a great. That's a great way to uh, send us out. I mean, you really did uh, encapsulate really a, an hour long conversation, which is I, I could keep going. Um, just really enjoying picking your brain and and hearing your experience, not just from sort of the uh, hey, I, I worked on theme parks, but really getting into uh, the meaning behind the work and then the results of the work. It's just been fascinating to talk with you, Joe. Really appreciate oh, you today. Oh, it was my absolute pleasure. It was super fun, and I hope I can do it again sometime. Yeah, we'd love to have you back. Uh, we got to always have reunion okay. shows. Excellent, <laughs> excellent, excellent. Well, thank you, guys, and good questions, and, and uh, that was wonderful. <laughs> Well, Joe's, <laughs> the joy that Joe has is really has a tendency to rub off, don't you think? He's just got such a, such a caring and fun voice to, to listen to. I could listen to him all afternoon. Definitely contagious. <laughs> Definitely. Well, so at the end of the interview there, uh, I, was, I was listening, Joe talked about the length of time it takes to tell a story in a variety of experiences. He's talking about like a two-minute roller coaster, a seven minute dark ride, or, you know, in, in the cruise line, you have to tell a story over six days of a voyage. Um, so those things to be able to do that in a, in a really, um, effective way, it takes a special set of disciplines and the skills to inject the story that, uh, has been predetermined at the head and, you know, in the blue sky phase, they take the, uh, that, uh, storytelling, whether it's long, short, long, long form or short form. So, Mel, as you are sort of leading and creative leading teams like this, how do you find people like Joe? Um, you know, he's pretty unique, but how do you find people like Joe, people with those broad skills that can help create a cohesive story? You know, uh, a lot of times it's easier to find people that want to be like Joe, <laughs> you know, early <laughs> on. Um, you know, for us, it's been uh, about you know, both uh, kind of trying to nurture that next generation of, of you know, making uh, our, our myself, our leaders uh, available, whether it's, um, you know, at university level programs, um, at uh, internships, um, just available for informational interviews, uh, putting information out there, whether it's uh, thought leadership, whether it's articles, whether it's podcasts like this, uh, just kind of <laughs> getting connected and being accessible and available. Uh, to people that are interested, regardless of whatever discipline or background they're coming in. Once they get into the industry or within our team and organization, you know, again, I, I'm a big believer in not sticking people into their box just because they happen to, to you know, major in accounting or engineering or architecture. It doesn't mean that, uh, you know, that's how I'm going to see them first and foremost. I'm going to really see them as this uh, this amazingly creative uh, creation <laughs> that uh, is full of uh, potential, and you know, frankly, you just want to let people kind of, um, kind of stretch their wings. Uh, ultimately, move into a place where they're they're able to lead either through influence or uh, you know actual um, you know supervision or oversight. Um, and you know, basically, I think the the people that end up becoming the strongest creative leaders and producers, whether it's the left side, right side of the brain. Um, ultimately, they've come up uh, through different disciplines and they've really gained a little bit of an appreciation for what it takes to execute um, some of these, uh, these big ideas and these stories. And, um, and they, they've learned how to harness the creativity of uh, the teams and the diverse team members. It, it's, you know, the, the guys with the, the fragile or frail egos that have to have every idea or every idea has to be their idea. Um, mm, and they're mm. just, you know, so nervous about uh, anyone having a, a better idea in the room. They're really not going to, you know, kind of excel, I think, uh, in this industry. At least they might be able to get a project done, but they're not going to be the ones that people want to work with on the next one and, and gravitate mm -hmm. around. So it, it's kind of a, a short game and a long game at the same time, I think. <laughs> no, that is that is true. And uh, it's it's really great to meet people at things like, you know, IAP or Blue Loop or the TEA events and uh, start to see that there's it might be somebody with um, the talent that's needed. Well, it looks like the sun is sinking in the west or 
Is that the east? I'm not sure. We ought to turn back, and uh, otherwise we're going to spend the night out here. Should we head back to the dock? Let's do it. All right. Until next time. Thanks, Mel. The Themed Attraction Podcast is hosted by Freddie Martin and Mel McGowan. We want you to know it's a big deal to us. You've taken the time to listen to our show. We do not take it for granted. Would you do us a favor and leave a positive review on Apple Podcasts? That's a great way to get the word out about the show so we can continue to connect with many more creative people just like you. We want to thank our guest, Joe Lanzicero. You can find more about Joe and follow his creative journey on Twitter at Joe underscore Lanzicero or connect with him on LinkedIn. He's also part of the creative team at Zeitgeist Design and Production via zeitgeist-usa.com. Get access to more stories and interviews at themedattraction.com. Start your own profile, discuss the latest creative advancements, and interact with your fellow theme park designers around the world. Follow the action on Instagram and Twitter at Themed Attraction and join our active discussion group on LinkedIn. Connect with Mel by email via mel at storylandstudios.com or follow him on Twitter at Mel McGowan and Instagram at Visioneer. You can find me at freddymartin.net and follow my adventures at Skipper Freddy on Instagram and Twitter. Our theme music was composed by Rob Watson, other music provided by The Lost Dogs. This episode was designed and produced by the one and only Dr. Barry Hill. Barry's the author of a brand new book on the history of regional theme parks with contributions from Rob Decker of Cedar Fair, Rick Bastrop, and our very own Mel McGowan. Imagineering an American Dreamscape tells the story of regional theme parks and the strong-willed visionaries behind them. Some of the stories you may have heard, most you probably haven't, and it's a fascinating tale to tell. You know, Mel, Barry had a close call in the jungle the other day. He was floating along, minding his own business, when a bloat of hippos tried to charge. Lucky for Barry, he only takes cash. Thanks for listening, folks. No, really, a group of hippos is actually called a bloat. No, I'm not kidding. Look it up. Go on. <laughs>